Father in heaven, thanks for being here in this place with us this morning. It's our prayer that the worship that we just lifted up was worthy of you, that it was well received. And it's our prayer, Father, that as we open our minds now and we open our Bibles, that the teaching that happens will be well received by us, powered by you, but well received by us. And I pray, Father, that it doesn't end here today. I pray that that the teaching will continue on, that we'll carry it with us, that will allow it to transform us, to change us. I pray, Father, that we'll allow what we hear today to strengthen us and hold us up when we need it to, to remind us of who you are. I pray, Father, that we will lean into it often. So, as your Spirit sees fit, would you bring it back to our remembrance? And then, Father, inspire us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share something with you this morning, and I'll only do it if you promise not to judge me. That's, that's the only way I'm going to do this. It's a personal admission, and so I really do need you to, to not judge me. Because if you judge me, you're judging my wife, and really, who wants to do that? So you have to promise not to judge either one of us. In fact, it's not just me and my wife. It, you'd even be judging our children, Nick, Eli, and Katie, because they're about to get lumped into this with us. So please, just, just hold it back and, and listen to the heart of what I'm about to share with you. So here we go. If your spirit is right, here we go. Our entire family are huge fans of Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. We, we have, thank you. We have been from the very beginning. Now, Walker predates the birth of our oldest son, and so Tina and I were fans long before he was born or the other two were born, but as they got older, we, we made a pledge to, among ourselves, just the two of us, that we would introduce our children to that fine cinematic history. So we bought the entire series. We may not have much, but folks, we own the entire series of Walker, Texas Ranger. We really do. And we have watched it beginning to end a number of times with our children. We are big, big fans. Now, it's been a few years since we cracked it out. We may have to again because we are big fans. Now, go ahead and admit it. It'll just free you a little bit if you could say it. Just tell me how many of you are, are fans of Walker, Texas Ranger. Throw a hand up. Seriously? Either the rest of you are lying or you haven't seen it. That's all I'm saying. It is good stuff. It went off the air in 2001 last year to commemorate 20 years since Walker went off the air. Parade Magazine ran a list of 101 Chuck Norris jokes. Now, you've probably heard some of these through the years, and I'm not going to share all 101 with you. I'm going to share 17 and then a bonus, a bonus Chuck Norris joke with you. Here you go. <laughs> if you spell Chuck Norris in Scrabble, you win forever. <laughs> Number two, Chuck Norris breathes air five times a day. Number three, Chuck Norris has a mug of nails instead of coffee in the morning. The dinosaurs looked at Chuck Norris the wrong way once. You know what happened to them. Chuck Norris does not own a stove, oven, or microwave because revenge is a dish best served cold. Chuck Norris does not sleep. He waits. <laughs> I like that one a lot. On the seventh day, God rested. Chuck Norris took over. Chuck Norris once shot an enemy plane down with his finger by yelling, bang. 
Chuck Norris does not hunt because the word hunting implies the possibility of failure. Chuck Norris goes killing. <laughs> Chuck Norris can play the violin with a piano. <laughs> That's quality stuff. Chuck Norris once punched a man in the soul. When Chuck Norris enters a room, he doesn't turn the lights on, he turns the dark off. <laughs> Chuck Norris used to beat up his shadow because it was following too close. It now stands 15 feet behind him. <laughs> Chuck Norris destroyed the periodic table because Chuck Norris only recognizes the element of surprise. <laughs> oh my word, this is great. Chuck Norris once kicked a horse in the chin. Its descendants are now known as giraffes. <laughs> when Chuck Norris was born, the only, re or the only person who cried was the doctor. Never slapped Chuck Norris. <laughs> Here's number 17. Chuck Norris can start a fire with an ice cube. <laughs> and the bonus one. This, this is quality. Chuck Norris was exposed to the coronavirus. The virus is now in quarantine for a month. <laughs> oh, man, we had heard him say in an interview, actually heard him say it a couple different times, that he really gets a hoot out of those. Though he never wrote any of them, never sanctioned the writing of them, he enjoys reading them and he laughs at them just like everybody else does. And I know that if you've been on the internet at all, you've seen things like that circulating around for years and years and years. What you might not know about Chuck Norris, though, is he is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, a sold-out believer in Jesus Christ. His autobiography is really a testimony to his faith. If you read it from beginning to end, he talks about God's footprint in his life. He talks about how he gave his life to the Lord and how Jesus changed him. It is a powerful work. It really is. Here's one of the excerpts from it. Take a look at this. I've always felt that it's just as easy to make a friend as it is to make an enemy. I believe that if I can avoid a potential problem situation, life is a lot better for all concerned. If you pit negative force against negative force, there will always be a collision. Even if you win, you still lose. Ideally, martial arts training should help a person avoid physical altercations and other adverse confrontations. Studies have repeatedly shown that muggers and other social predators study potential victims for signs of weakness, some indication that they can be taken advantage of. Usually this has to, usually this has to do with the way a person carries himself or herself. But if someone adept at the martial arts moves and walks with a certain confidence, they seem to exude a physical and psychological attitude of strength, awareness, and preparedness. This attitude has little to do with the size or appearance of the person. It is power under control. It is power under control. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning, this idea of power under control. Now, I don't want Chuck Norris to do the teaching. I want the Bible to do it. But before we leave him, let me share with you just one more excerpt on what he says about power under control. Jesus is the ultimate example of power under control. All the way to the crucifixion, he willingly allowed the soldiers to take him to the cross. They didn't take his life. He gave it up. That is power under control. And it truly is. Again, Chuck is a born-again believer, and his autobiography, the things that he writes and the way he writes, is a testimony to his faith. So let's just jump into this idea of power under control. 
In order to do that, we're going to find ourselves squarely in the middle of a sermon series that we started at the beginning of the year on the transformed life. It comes from the book of Colossians. If you brought a Bible with you, open to the first chapter with me. Colossians chapter 1. Once again, we're going to read verses 9 through 14. A lot of repetition in this sermon series. It's on purpose. Here we go, verse 9, Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There are five things that we are calling out of that passage. Five things that I would refer to as the signs of a transformed life. We've already been through three of them. Here's all five one more time. The transformed person is filled with the knowledge of his will, number two. The transformed person is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, number three. The transformed person bears fruit in every good work, number four. The transformed person is strengthened with all power, Number five, the transformed person gives thanks to the Father. This morning, we're going to be focusing on number four. Here it is one more time for you. The transformed person is strengthened with all power. Now, it should not be a shock to anyone in this room that when we're focusing on that one, and given what we just went through with the Chuck Norris quotes and all of that, we are talking about a power under control but it is power under the control of God. Paul would tell us that the transformed person is strengthened with a power under the control of God. We are strengthened with all power. It is a gift that comes from Him, and it follows transformation. The most visible sign of that power happens at the point of salvation. For almost everyone, the most visible sign of power under control is when we yield to the fact that Jesus, with His power under control, willingly gave Himself up for us. He died on the cross. And when we will surrender to that, something amazing takes place within us. There are a lot of different passages we can go to to illustrate that. This morning, I want to take you to an unexpected one. I want us to go to the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. If you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard Jonah's story. Even if you grew up outside of the church, you have heard bits and pieces of Jonah's story. Now, we're going to come back to Colossians chapter 1. There is a ribbon marker in your Bible. Why don't you put that right there in front of Colossians 1? But then turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Jonah with me. We're going to be in the second chapter. God has called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. Jonah doesn't want to do it, so he is on the run from the Lord. While he is on the run from the Lord, he gets on a ship, and he tries to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. God finds him, 
sends a storm. Jonah ends up thrown overboard, and he is swallowed by a fish. Listen to what happens when he is inside the fish. You ever been inside a fish? I don't mean literally, but figuratively. You ever found yourself inside a fish? You've been on the run from God, and God catches you, and it's quite unpleasant for a while. You're inside a fish. That's where Jonah's at. Listen to this, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars had closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now listen, when he was at the pinnacle of this, when things could not get any worse, Jonah said this, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars were closed upon me forever. That's how he was describing his condition. Inside the belly of the fish, when it looked like there was no hope, he knew he was caught, but it looked like there was no hope. That's how he described it. It's as if we have opened up Jonah's journal and we're getting to read these personal insights and he isn't pulling anything back. He's telling us exactly how bad it was. But I love his response. I hope you do too. Listen to it again. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Listen, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Bible says at that moment, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Everything changed for him in that moment when he was able to say, what I have vowed, I will pay. I am caught, God. I am caught. And then he takes it a step further and says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, and then he was vomited out upon dry land. It didn't happen until he surrendered to God. And it is still that way for us. We do not experience the power of God until we surrender to God. And most visibly, that happens in salvation. But that is not the only time that it ever happens. 
Even among the saved, there are still a number of people that will run from the Lord at different times. Maybe like Jonah, you've been called into something you don't want to do. Maybe the Lord is nudging you to say something you don't want to say. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of a situation where you would rather not be. And so you try to run away from it, and God catches you, and then you have to surrender to Him once again until the Lord vomits you out on dry ground and says, Now, now get to it. Now get to it. But let's go back to that idea of salvation being the most visible sign of this happening. The same thing that happened for Jonah happens for us. New Testament teaches that in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Listen to what Paul says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is his immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So salvation comes into a person's life and then something follows it very closely. Paul would call it the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power. It follows salvation. It follows that initial surrender, and what a remarkable gift that is from God, the immeasurable greatness of His power at your disposal. Oh, it's still under the control of God, but it is given to us as we need it, the immeasurable greatness of His power. Now, here's the thing. Once a person realizes their need for salvation, once a person comes to that point of surrender and they recognize that this immeasurable greatness of God's power is available to us, it becomes imperative for us to understand that that will be given to us in match step with our faith. Now you let that soak in for just a second. The immeasurable greatness of God's power will be given to you in match step with your faith. Are you following me? I like the way the writer of Hebrews captures this idea. Join me in the 11th chapter, will you? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I'm going to read that for you one more time. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When it is our desire to please God, faith is a necessary component. And not just simple faith. 
Not just the faith that leads to salvation. That's where everything begins. We have to add to that our ongoing, growing faith in who God is. Now, let me just remind you, salvation begins in faith. Don't take my word for that. You need to trust the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's where a relationship with God begins. It begins in faith. But our walk with God is determined by the depth of our faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says it this way, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, we might wonder what that type of faith looks like. Simple answer to it. We have to believe in the character of God. We have to believe in who He is. We have to believe what He says. And we have to believe in what He does. We have to believe in who He is. We have to believe what He says. And we have to believe what He does. Now, I want to make sure that stays with you, so let me say it again. We have to believe in who He is. We have to believe what He says. And we have to believe in what He does. Studies have shown that if you hear something, you have a better chance of remembering it than just seeing it. But if you speak it, it'll stay with you. So let's speak it together. You have to believe in who he is. You have to believe in what he says. And you have to believe what he does. That's how we know that we are believing in the character of God. When those three things are in place within our life, our faith is growing. And now, that is unleashing within us the power of God, the immeasurable greatness of the power of God under His control being released within us in match step to our growing faith. It is so important for us to do that, to understand those three things and make sure that we don't just come to a place where we say, I believe in God and that's good enough. Not if you want the power of God released in your life. You have to add to that. You have to grow deeper in that. It is necessary for you to do that. You have to believe in who God is. You have to believe what God says. And you have to believe in what He does. Now again, I don't want you to just take my word for these things. I want you to see it for yourself. So let's jump right into it. We're going to look at who He is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Hebrews 13, verse 8. If you're a note taker, make sure you get these down. If you want your faith to grow, you may need these as anchor points, so go with me. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God never changes. One of the things that we must hold on to is called His immutability. God never changes. He never changes. We change. God doesn't change. God is always the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The immutability of God, the unchanging nature of who He is, is an anchor point for Christianity. And it is an anchor point for us to grow deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in our faith. I trust who He is. I trust that He will never change. So I don't ever have to worry about that. Once I get to that place, 
then I can truly trust his word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, reads like this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If God says it, he means it. If God says it, he means it. It isn't going to change because of his immutable character. So what you find in Scripture, even as modern culture tries to say that that no longer applies, it does. It does. Because God didn't change his mind and he hadn't changed his word. So if we're going to see the immeasurable power of God in our lives, we're going to have to trust what the Bible says. We're going to have to know what the Bible says. And if we can hold on to it, then we can experience the power that comes through the simple Word of God. So now, we trust who He is. We trust what He says. When it really comes to this issue of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God, it is tied tightly to what He does. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Then we can go to other places like this, the book of Numbers, chapter 23, starting in verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If God promises it, he will do it. So when you find different things in Scripture that come across to you as a promise from God, you better trust it. Because God doesn't lie. If God says he'll do something for you, he will do it. If God has said he will be with you, he will be with you. If God says he will not forsake you, he will not forsake you. If God is telling you and the Spirit is speaking it to you that you are to move into some new area in your life and you are to do it with a bold courage, and you're to do it with that bold courage because the Lord your God goes with you. Joshua knows what that's like and so do many of you. You boldly go. You boldly go. Because God told you to, you go. The Lord your God will go with you. Now for a lot of people, they will look at, at things like that and they'll say, I just don't know if I can trust it. You want to know the reason that you can't trust it? It's probably because you haven't determined whether or not you will really put your faith in God. We tend to put our faith in a person or an object that has proven themselves to be reliable. That's what we, we tend to always do. And then we say we have faith in them. But here's the thing about it, and I like the way Neil Anderson says it, so we'll just put it up on the screen. You can't have faith in faith. Faith has no validity without an object. So when we put our faith in a, a person or an object that has proven themselves reliable, if it's not God, they don't have the same character of God, whether that is a person or an object, they're going to let you down. And that in and of itself erodes faith. But when we bring faith back into the realm of our walk with God, when we bring it back into our spiritual life, holding on to those things that we just learned about who He is and what He says and what He does, our faith can be very, very, very strong, trusting that His power is there for us, trusting that His power, the immeasurable greatness of it, will be released within us when we need it. Maybe not a minute before, but when we need it, it will be there. And all of that is the sign of a transformed life. I would offer to you that if you don't have a strong faith in God, 
Oh, you might have a saving faith, but that's as far as it's ever gone because you believe that God has been unreliable, that God has let you down. It isn't God's fault because God has never changed. God has never let you down because God has never changed. The issue may simply be that you don't know enough about God for your faith to be strong. So if you want to strengthen that area of your faith, the depth of relationship, you get to know more about him. Because if you have any propensity for saying that God was not there for me when I needed him, or God was not beside me when I needed him, or God let me down, that's not God's fault. That is not God's fault. That is yours. And it is measured by how much you know about him. So get to know him more. I promised you as we went through this series of sermons that I wasn't just going to say easy things for you. That's a hard one. If you believe the Lord has let you down, you need to get to know God a bit better. You need to add something to your faith because God's never let you down. One of the promises of Scripture is that He will never leave you nor forsake you. So I'm going to hold on to that promise. I'm going to believe it. And now after, well, I'm 53 years old, I've been walking with the Lord from the time I was born. I've never seen God let me down. That does not mean, listen, that does not mean, listen, that does not mean that I have not faced difficulty. That doesn't mean that at all. But I have never once seen God leave me or forsake me because I know who God is. You know who God is. You get to know him better if you need to because if you believe that he has ever left you, that isn't his fault. That isn't his fault. And if anybody has walked away from the relationship that you have with him, it was never God. So let that soak in for you just a little bit as you think about it. But then as you really let that take hold, and imagine for yourself what Paul was talking about in Colossians chapter 1, when he teaches us that in the transformed life, we will be strengthened with all power. Let's go back to Colossians 1, because I want you to see that he didn't just tell us that we would be strengthened with all power. He added something else to it. Verse 11, here we go. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So God says that we are going to be strengthened with all power with joy. So he puts those two things together, and he says that they're going to come for two very specific reasons, to help produce within us endurance and patience. Now, endurance and patience is necessary because of what we just talked about. Just because you give your life to Christ, just because you become a Christian, does not mean that all of your struggles are gone. It does not mean that all hardship is gone. If you believe that that's the case, well, there's two things at play. Number one, you've probably never read the Bible because Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or number two, you have listened to some modern preachers that have taught you that a relationship with Jesus frees you from all struggle and hardship. Just send me $1,000 and I'll make sure that it works that way. That's the, the way a lot of that preaching comes about. Don't ever listen to any preacher that tells you that in Christ you will never struggle. 
You listen to preachers that tell you what the Bible says. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In those struggles, Jesus will be with you. He'll walk through them with you. Imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world where there were no struggles or hardships or challenges. How many of us would long to stand in the presence of the Lord in heaven? We'd have everything we need right here. There would be no longing in our spiritual life for the restoration of the relationship. So it would have never made sense for God to have removed struggles from this world. Instead, God leaves them here so that it creates within us a longing for that restoration, for the depth of relationship when we will see Him face to face. But God doesn't leave us alone in them. But take heart, I've overcome the world, Jesus said. That promise was given to the disciples but passed on to us. When He said, take heart, I've overcome the world, He said it to us as well, promising to strengthen us, according to Paul in Colossians 1, with all power and joy so that we will have endurance and patience when the difficulties come. That's why. So that we will have what we need. And my friends, that is supernatural. That is supernatural. That's not talking about the things that we already have the ability to face on our own. This is supernatural. This is God's power released within us to take us through things that go beyond our own abilities, our own natural abilities. I want to show you a place in Scripture that illustrates it very, very well. Go with me to Acts chapter 9, will you? Acts chapter 9. Make sure you're turning your Bibles if you've already closed them and and said that's enough Scripture for today, well, open them back up. (laughs) Acts chapter 9, here we go. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas took a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold... I'm sorry, that's look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. Now remember, Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1 that we will be strengthened with all power. Now here's this word strengthened in Acts chapter 9 verse 19. Now he was strengthened because, do you remember, he hadn't eaten for how long? Three days. He hadn't, anything, hadn't had anything to drink for how long? Three days. So now Ananias is touched him, the scales have fallen from his eyes, and the Bible says he got up, he ate and he drank, and he was strengthened. That is a natural strengthening. Food and water brought strength back to him. That was very natural. Let's go on in Acts chapter 9. By the way, why don't you just highlight, underline, circle that word, because you're going to want to see how it connects. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man, is, this, is not this, I'll get my tongue working, the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now highlight, underline, or circle that second word, strength. You can find it in verse 22. It is different than the word in verse 19. Eighty-six different times Dr. Luke will use this second word for strength in either his gospel or the book of Acts. Eighty-six different times. And in all 86 of those different appearances of this word in the original language, it is never used to talk about strength that comes through food or water. It is always used in regard to a supernatural gift. In this particular case, Paul was strengthened in his words, in his speech, in his thoughts to the point that he confounded all the Jews. Brand new believer in Jesus guy who had been contrary to the things of the New Testament, guy who had resisted grace holding on to the law, now is preaching grace in the face of the law. Where does that come from? That comes from God. Paul was just strengthened with all power. It's the same exact word that he uses in Colossians chapter 1. It is supernatural. Now that is power under the control of God, given to us when we need it most. In moments where endurance and patience are required, God says, I'll be there. I will be there. Don't you give up. I will be there. When you're facing something that you think is impossible, don't walk away from it. I will be there. When it seems too big for you, don't you throw your hands up and just say, I can't do it. I will be there. That is the supernatural strengthening with all power. God's power. I love the way it unfolds in Scripture. Here's six different examples for you. Number one, God strengthens us through faith. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's Paul writing in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 about Abraham after Abraham was called to leave his home and go into a brand new land to become the father of many nations. He never wavered in his faith because God was strengthening it. God was strengthening his faith. He does the same for us. Number two. God strengthens us through grace. Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's grace for the moment. Whatever it is that you're facing, there is a grace for it that God strengthens within us. For all endurance and patience, God does that for us. You hold on to it. You may not have the ability to do it right now, but when you need it, God will be there. And He will give you what you need. That is grace for the moment. Number three, God strengthens us in his might. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 reads, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Can you imagine that? You have the strength of his might at your disposal, not all the time. You have it when the Lord strengthens you with all power. When you need it, it is there. Don't you ever forget it or give up on it. Number four, God strengthens us to serve. Again, to Timothy, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You may not think that you have anything to offer the kingdom of God. My friends, you do. God gave you supernatural spiritual gifts. They came to you when you gave your life to him, when you were filled with the Spirit. God's already given you what you need. Turn it loose in the kingdom. Serve. Turn it loose in the kingdom. Number five, again to Timothy, God strengthens us to speak, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Same thing is there for you. If you are familiar with the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will bring back to you what you need when you need it. And sometimes the Lord will give you words that you never thought possible. God strengthens us to speak. In fact, let's just take a quick little straw poll. How many of you have found yourself in a conversation at times when somebody was asking you about your faith or about the things of God and you started saying things and afterwards you said, I have no idea where that came from. You have been strengthened with all power. Here's number six. God strengthens us for all circumstances. We've already talked a lot about this. Philippians chapter four, verses 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that's the application of that verse that gets misused all the time. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's God saying, I'll give you what you need. You'll just be content. I'm going to take care of you because I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Strengthened in all circumstances. That's just a sampling of how this works. When Paul says one of the visible signs of the transformed life is that you are strengthened with all power, with joy for the fact or for the sake of endurance and patience so that you can do what you need to do, he means it. He means it. And that is the immeasurable greatness of God that He will grant that to us. Oh, my friends, you hold on to that. Don't ever give up on that. That's something you don't find any place else. 
You don't find that offered to you by any false god or idol. That is offered from Jehovah God, the only God. And it comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. It begins in us understanding who His Son is. And then as we get to know Him better and better and better and better and better and better and better, and our relationship with Him grows deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, we are strengthened with all power. When you need it, it is there. Now, let me just leave you with this. In fact, Raina, if you and the rest of the worship team want to come on up, you, you can do that. I am, I'm going to be done in about 45 seconds. When you start asking God for that type of strengthening, do you know what follows? Joy. Joy for the moment. Whatever it is that you're facing, because you know that God is facing it with you, He is in it with you, joy follows. You hold on to that.